0: Good morning. Morning. Thank you, Jason. Can you believe that as of this morning, we are beginning month three of Ross's three month sabbatical? We also are beginning month three of our sermon series looking at the minor prophets. And this morning, we are going to look at our eighth minor prophet, and that is the prophet Jonah. the prophet Jonah. Uh, how many Tales fans do we have in the room? Come on, Jonah watchers. Okay, so you guys, if I get a sore throat or something, you can come up and finish the sermon for me. Um, we're going to look at Jonah. Before we do, I want to pray, but I also want to say this. Jonah is most famous for its reference to a fish swallowing a man and then vomiting him out three days later. We're not going to spend a lot of time looking at that. And I know, and as I've read and as I've prepared for this morning, so many people who just disbelieve that that happened. Let me just say this I believe it did. I do not believe it is a fable, I do not believe it is an allegory. Although I think the Bible could be, could be fine in using fable, fables and allegories to teach lessons. The reason I am so confident that this actually happened is because the Lord Jesus Christ said it happened. In Matthew chapter 6, I believe, beginning in about verse 40, when Jesus was asked to do a sign by an unbelieving people, he said, the only sign I will show you is the sign of Jonah. When Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish. And Jesus was saying that that was a symbol, in a sense, an historical and foreshadowing. Let's switch the mics. That's a foreshadowing of Jesus' own death and burial and then his subsequent resurrection. Yeah, let's go ahead and just grab it. Sorry about that. No, I can't hold my idolatrous pen. Sorry about that. <laughs> so anyway, Jesus says, this is Matthew chapter 6, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 12, uh, verse 40, he says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man. That's a reference to Jesus. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So I'm just going to leave it at that. And I'll be happy to talk with anybody after the service or at any, almost any time to talk through why I believe that is true. But f- we're not going to spend too much time focusing on that this morning. Before we open up God's Word now, would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that... You would be present with us by your spirit, that you would teach us, that your word would be faithfully proclaimed, and that in that faithful proclamation that you would move in power, that your spirit would descend, that Jesus would be glorified, that his kingdom would grow. And that we would be a people who walk in a manner joyously worthy of the calling that is ours in Christ Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are going to be in the book of Jonah, and we're going to pretty much stay there. So if you have your Bibles, please open it up to the book of Jonah. And as you're doing that, I want to walk through just very quickly the historical context. Remember, we've been talking about these Old Testament prophets. We've said that there's a northern kingdom in Israel, been very, very wicked. There's a southern kingdom in Judah that has been less wicked. Well, this prophet Jonah is from the northern kingdom of Israel. And he prophesied at a, at right around 100 years before uh, the book of Nahum. So you remember Dave Job preached from Nahum a month ago, about 100 years earlier than that. There was a king named Jeroboam II. And the reason that's important is because he was the longest reigning king in the history of the northern kingdom of Israel. And you're saying, okay, so what does that matter? It was a tremendous amount of political stability. A nation that otherwise had very little political stability, where there were coup, coups after coup, and kings being slaughtered. It also was a time of military expansion. In fact, this same Joseph, who we're going to read about today, he, or Jonah, he doesn't only appear in the book of Jonah. He appears in 2 Kings chapter 14, and he makes a prophecy that the northern kingdom of Israel would make this military expansion up to the north essentially, that they would overrun Syria. And that was really important because for the kings leading up to this king, Jeroboam II, there had been conflict after conflict after conflict. Syria would come down and take some cities, then Israel would take them back, and then the Moabites, it's funny, the the way the Bible describes it is, each spring, the Moabites would come in and raid. It was almost like getting ready for spring training. You know, oh, it's spring, let's go raid the Israelites again. And so it was just this tremendous history of conflict, including conflict between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Do you get it? Conflict. And so Jonah prophesies that there is going to be this tremendous military expansion to the north. And there is. And so you couple this military expansion with stability politically, and what do you get? You get economic prosperity. It's high-flying times in the northern kingdom of Israel. As with all high-flying times, there are their lows. And as we have seen from many of the prophets who we've already looked at over these past couple months, is that there's also a tremendous amount of moral and spiritual corruption. And that's no different in this point in time with Israel. But interestingly, Jonah is not called to go to the northern kingdom of Israel. This book of Jonah will be a call from God to go to an enemy land, and that's Assyria. Okay, so that's the historical context. Now what I want to do over these next few minutes is I just want to go through the book of Jonah. We're going to cover it, read it together, almost all of it. I have a time limit. And I want you to see how God moves and what this story of the man swallowed by the fish has to do with us today. Are you ready? Let's look at uh, uh, chapter one. And I've I've headed each of these sections. I've tried to give little titles to each section so that as we go through it, it'll be more memorable for us. And this first section, right doctrine wrong direction. And you're going to see, by the way, a theme here. The right doctrine. Jonah has the right doctrine, but he goes in the wrong direction. So with me, would you open up Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. I just stop right there for just a second. We're going to say, Nineveh, was the capital city of a nation called Assyria. And do you remember I said that they had this tremendous, Israel had this tremendous military expansion to the north and they took over Syria, or much of Syria? Well, they're getting closer and closer to another nation, Assyria. Not, not, those are two different nations, Assyria and Assyria. And they're getting closer and closer to Assyria. And some historians believe that at the time Jonah was a prophet, that Israel itself paid tribute, like a tax to the nation of Assyria. So in the midst of this military expansion and economic prosperity and political stability, there's also this animus with Assyria. And you almost can imagine, by the way, like today, you can almost imagine there's this sort of nationalistic fervor in Israel, this pride for all the work that God must be doing in giving us military success. But Assyria stands out there and God says, Jonah, I want you to go to them. Go to their capital. And if you rewind a month when Dave Job was talking to us about Nahum, do you remember how he described, how history has described the Assyrians? Atrocities. Remember he said eight straight kings that in history would be known as like having eight straight Adolf Hitlers? That they bragged that they didn't have enough dirt in which to bury the bodies of of the... of the conquered peoples, Jonah is called to them. And he wasn't too excited about it. But Jonah, this is verse three, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. All right, historians disagree. They're like, Tarshish, it's a faraway city in Spain. Oh, no, Tarshish, it's not a faraway city at all. It's just a reference to a place that must be far away. It doesn't matter. He's going far away, and he has been called to go to Nineveh, which would require him to go north and then east, and instead, he goes due west. And though Nineveh would be a land trip, he wouldn't have to get on water, he goes down to Joppa, where there's a port, and he gets on a ship. You get it? He is going in the wrong direction. He is running from the call that God has given to him. But he's not only running from the call. Do you read what el- did you hear what else he was running from? He's running from the presence of the Lord. And I want you to footnote that just for a second because we're going to come back to it. But the Lord, verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And you will see over and over again how God uses forces of nature to direct Jonah and to direct outcomes. So it's not only a fish swallowing Jonah that's significant about God's supernatural authority over the elements. He does it over and over again in this book. He hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners, the sailors, were afraid, and each cried out to his God. All right, what does that suggest? What does that suggest? You got a lot of different men from a lot of different ethnic backgrounds, probably from a lot of different nations with a lot of different gods. And they are covering their bets. Okay, you get your God. You talk to your God. You talk to your God. I'll talk to my God. You talk to your God. Because this storm is killing us. We need to get saved. Everybody, call your God. And that's what they do. But they also take this real practical step. It says they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah's asleep. Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, every one of these references, this use of the word God here is the Hebrew word Elohim. It's just the generic word for God, even with a lowercase g. It is not necessarily a reference to the God of the Bible. We're going to get to that in just a second. But these men, all with their superstitions, all with their false gods, are going to come together and they are going to try to figure out whose fault it is that they are where they are. And pick it up in verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, which is like rolling dice. Let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, And listen to what they say to him, because it's really fascinating. They say to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. That's where they rolled the dice. They want to know who would know the answer for why this had happened. And then listen to these questions. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? All right, when you meet somebody in a social setting and you're trying to break the ice, what do you say? Hey, so what do you do for a living? Super casual, right? Where are you from? Tell me about where you grew up. That's the kind of conversation you have when you're just trying to get to know somebody. When you are in a storm that is so bad that they have thrown off all the cargo, that the ship is threatening to break apart, why in the world are they asking him those questions? Don't you wonder? What is your occupation? I'll tell you what's happening here. I think God is using these sailors to awaken a sleepy Jonah, a sleepy prophet. I think that's why he's in the hold asleep. And what, he is call, what God is doing is he is using these sailors who, by the way, never say the obvious question, dude, the lot points to you. What did you do? They never ask him that question. What's God doing? God is using these sailors to awaken Jonah to say who he is, to remind him who he is, and to remind him whose he is. What is your occupation? I'm a prophet. What country are you from? Israel. Listen to how Jonah... But by the way, have have you ever been confronted like that? by somebody else has God ever done that to you where somebody asks what would otherwise be an innocuous question but that if you answered honestly it would totally out you as a follower of Jesus and you're a little uncomfortable with being totally outed in that company as a follower of Jesus has that has that ever happened to anybody else I'm in a work thing, and we're doing team building stuff, and you do an icebreaker, and somebody will say, hey, so what's your favorite book? This one? Or my favorite is, almost invariably, when I preach, either the Friday before I preach... Or the Monday after I've preached, the question goes something like this. If it's the Friday before, so Dan, doing anything special this weekend? Or on Monday, so Dan, did anything special happen this weekend? I think preaching the word of God is the most precious, special thing I can ever do. And I have to go, um... And so many times I've said, no, nah, no, nah, nothing special at all, nothing special at all, right? Because I don't want to be outed. Maybe that guy's some crazy Bible thumper, right? Is it just me? Why is it every Sunday I get up here, it's just me who, go, who goes through this? I get a brand new boss. He's a good guy. He's trying to create a relationship with me. And he says to me, Dan, if you weren't practicing law, what would you do for a living, I'd preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in a Christian church. God does this to us. He doesn't only do it to Jonah. He is trying to awaken us, to remind us, will will we be those people? Will I be that man who is ashamed of the gospel? Or will I be bold? Praise God I didn't answer that way when he asked me that question. For the first time, God is awakening me, and I said, I would be a preacher of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) But that's not the way I normally would answer. God will do this all the time. God is doing that with Jonah. He's trying to awaken Jonah, and I think it's starting to work because look how Jonah starts to answer. He says to them, I am a Hebrew. He doesn't identify essentially with a nation. And by the way, if he does identify with a nation... Maybe he says he's from Israel. Remember what I said? All these conflicts, conflicts with Syria, conflicts with the Moabites, conflicts with Judah, who knows where those other sailors are from? Maybe some of them are from Syria. Maybe some of them had heard of the prophet of God named Jonah who prophesied that Israel would overrun Damascus, the capital city of Syria. And maybe they had family who were killed. And maybe, just maybe, they're carrying a knife. So when Jonah identifies himself, it might be life-threatening. But look what he does. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. He is associating with the people of God. I fear the Lord. And here, we don't use the word Elohim. When you see in your Bible all caps, that's Yahweh or Jehovah, the name of God. Jonah is not saying, I have a God. He's saying, I have the God, the one true and living God, Jehovah. And then he goes on to say this, and that he is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now I want you just to get your head around that for a second. Is he right? He's absolutely right. Where's he going? Where's he going? To escape the presence of the Lord. He gets his doctrine right, but he goes in the total wrong direction. There is this disconnect. There's this incongruity between what he says he believes and how he chooses to live. Can I get a witness? Listen to how God, through these men, treats him now. It says the men were exceedingly afraid. Now, they're already afraid because of the storm, and it's growing worse and worse. And Jonah gives them this news, that he's a prophet of the one true God, Yahweh. And listen to what. And they say to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And this is what Jonah says. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And listen to what the men did. They have every right now in the world to kill him. And they, you think they want to, right? Tell, tell us, Jonah, what should we do to you so we can save our own skins? That's the question that they ask him. Listen to what they do, though. It says, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. Don't miss that. Do you see what these men have done? These men who are calling out to their false gods, these men who superstitiously are casting their lots, These men who who Jonah, we will discover, are probably the types of men who he would hate and he would show no mercy to them. And do you know what they do? He has endangered their lives. And he knows he has endangered their lives. And he tells them he has endangered their lives. And they show him mercy. Instead of throwing him overboard, they row harder. Is it futile? Absolutely. But do you see what they're doing for him? They, these foreigners with foreign gods, will show this religious professional mercy. Well, eventually it gets too much. They could not make it back to dry land, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. God was just going to keep making that thing blow. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. And here they go again. That word, the Lord. Yahweh. They call out to the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. Therefore they called out to Yahweh, O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. I asked earlier if anybody had seen the the Veggie Tales version of Jonah. I think they actually get it right in this scene. If If you're not familiar with it, it's something like this. They're out on the boat and the storm is amazing. The waves are tossing and turning. The boat looks like it's going to capsize. There are clouds in the sky, there's lightning flashing. It's just ominous and dark and they throw Jonah into the water. And you know it, right? As soon as they throw him into the water, The glass like sea. The clouds part. The lightning gone. Sun out. And it looks like this beautiful blue sky day. And I think they even, for effect, have the, ah, you know, like the angels going. And I think that's probably close to being right. And why do I say that? For the next verse, then the men feared Yahweh. And they feared him exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh, and they made vows. This prophet of Almighty God, disobedient as he is, is an instrument of God's grace that these sailors, through this life-threatening encounter with Jonah, would come to worship Yahweh by name. It's an amazing thing, right? And then it says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Okay, so that's chapter one. Right doctrine, wrong direction. Jonah articulates truth well, but he's not living it out. When we get to chapter two, and we're not going to read chapter two, I just want you to notice it is Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish. And I would like for you to read this later, and I want you to think about this thing that what's missing let me ask you when you sin and you know you sin what what is a common feature in your prayer a confession begging for forgiveness sometimes that doesn't appear in Jonah's prayer at all there's no i'm sorry there's no i repent There's no, I did it. And without going into it in too much detail, just get your head around that. Like, what does that indicate? I think it suggests a hard, angry, and probably a proud heart that justifies oneself. Meaning that There's no turn. Repentance means to turn, to to go one direction and to turn and go back the other direction. That there's been no change in Jonah, even though there's been a change in his physical circumstance. And so how does God respond to this prayer that does not seek mercy or confess sin? Chapter 2 ends this way, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land you catch that? God shows him mercy. So now we've had the sailors who have shown Jonah mercy. We've had God show Jonah mercy. How does Jonah respond? Chapter three, we get to chapter three, and, and the, the heading I have for chapter three is right vocation, right location. Okay. Chapter 3, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out and here is his sermon, probably the shortest sermon in history. In English, it's eight words. In the Hebrew, it's five words. This is what he says. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And verse five, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And then the passage will go on to say that the king called this fast. And he sends out a proclamation among all of the kingdom that uh, all men, all beasts shall be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from violence that is in his hands. And he says this, who knows? God may turn and relent. Sorry, may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And that's exactly what God does. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Do you believe this? Making a fish that can swallow a man is child's play. This man just preached an eight-word sermon in a city, the capital city of an enemy country that is out for blood, that is vicious and violent, repents. Do you believe this? I think there are a lot of Christians who don't. And I think that's why I find when I go through the commentaries that here are the three things that are consistent about what Christians say about this. The first thing they say is, that wasn't the whole sermon. He had a whole lot of other things to say. That wasn't the whole sermon. And then they say, you know, we know in history from the book of Amos, who was a contemporary of Jonah, that there was an earthquake at some point. So that, there probably was an earthquake before this, and that earthquake probably got to Nineveh, and that Ninevites were probably afraid because of the earthquake, and given their superstition, they probably thought that a judgment from God was coming. And then the third thing is, I can't remember where I read this, but I was like, where does this come from? There probably was a solar eclipse, and those people were probably very superstitious, And those superstitious people, when they saw the solar eclipse, were probably afraid, they were probably scared, and they thought, maybe that's a sign from God. And here's the thing. It doesn't matter. Here's what we know to be true. That Jonah faithfully proclaimed the words that God gave to him. We might call that preaching. And in a culture today that doesn't think highly of preaching, you can see God thinks a lot of it. That God thinks the faithful proclamation of of his word will be the thing that will change lives. And so either Jonah preached an eight-word sermon and that city came to faith and repented, or... God made an earthquake to prepare their hearts. And then God made a solar eclipse to prepare their hearts. And against that backdrop, God got his reluctant prophet to go to town and articulate a message of judgment. Either way, do you see how awesome God is? This book, if it means nothing else, it stands for the proposition that God will stop at nothing To get anyone. And it doesn't matter going into a foreign city. It doesn't matter if you need earthquakes, that God will move. Do you think there's anybody beyond the reach of God? And we do, don't we? Don't we know people and we say, that guy needs Jesus? Too bad he'll never get him. And we use that as an excuse to maintain our silence. Are we any different from Jonah? That person's done too much. She is, she's made such a wreck of her life. Not that I'm gossiping, but she made such a wreck of her life. She needs Jesus. And what does she see from us? A bunch of Jonas. Hard-hearted, proud, religious people. See, God is trying to break through. I'll share with you, as I was finalizing my notes this morning, as that wasp flies flies around, as I was finalizing my notes this morning, 7 o'clock, my mother calls me. My mother never calls me. And she says, Dan, God gave me a word for you today. My mother has never done that before, and it sounded frankly bizarre coming out of my mother's mouth. She said, I know you're preaching today. There is somebody in that room who needs to hear what you have to say today. So there might be one of you, and I believe there is one of you, who believes that you are so far from God that he would have nothing to do with you. You feel so filthy, you feel soiled that he would have nothing to do with you. Do you think your sin is even remotely the same as Ninevite, as the Ninevites? Mass murderers? Or if you watch the Jonah the Veggie Tales, fish slappers? God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And those things that are going on in your life that you think are wrecking your life, and why can't God just do something good in your life? Maybe that's an earthquake that God is using to get your attention. Maybe that's a solar eclipse that God is using to get your attention. Maybe that wrecked relationship, that job issue, I don't know what it is. And what God is saying is He will break down any barrier to have you. He loves you that much. You want a miracle? How about he sends his son from heaven? You want a miracle? How about that son lives the perfect life that we cannot live? The son of God would step out of heaven and step into this mess. That he would choose to put his name on us, that he would choose to identify with us, that he would choose to put his fate in our hands, that he would choose to fulfill the prophecy made some 700 years earlier that God chose to crush him, that it was the will of God to crush his son, and that the iniquity of us would be laid on his son. You want a miracle? That same man, Jesus Christ, is nailed to a cross. He is plunged. A spear is plunged into his side. He is declared dead, put into a tomb for three days. And on the third day, he rose. You want a miracle from God? He's given it to you. He has given you that miracle. Are you running from him? Now, some of us have a testimony that they know all of this is true already because their lives were wrecks, and then God stepped in. Jesus stepped in. And when that happens, what do we do? We rejoice, don't we? We say, hallelujah, God has moved. Today, by the way, one of my closest friends Uh, A recovering drug addict with a rap sheet as long as my arm got shot in the face. Today marks 10 days he is clean and sober. He is a walking billboard for the goodness, grace, power, and love of God. And so we hear stories like that and we say, God got Gilbert. Look what awesome thing God can do. And we rejoice. But then we start to believe that he can't get somebody else. I'm just telling you, he can. And maybe that somebody else is you. And so we rejoice. Whenever we hear this great news, we rejoice. But not everybody. Because there's still Jonah to deal with. And we get to chapter 4. What do we have in chapter 4? We have Jonah's right doctrine, but his wrong heart. So God has shown this tremendous mercy to Nineveh. And chapter 4 begins this way, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord. And listen, remember I said in his earlier prayer, he never said sorry, never said I confess, never said I repent, God forgive me. Listen to this prayer. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. And then he starts ragging on God for how good God is. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And then Jonah takes this mind-boggling turn. Listen to what he says. Therefore, now, O Lord, in other words, therefore, since you are so merciful, since you are so relenting, since you are so loving, listen to what he says. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And God responds by some some amazing supernatural things. We're going to skip over that and drop down to this point when Jonah repeats his request, kill me now. And listen to what God says. The Lord said, you pity the plant. God had made this plant in a 24-hour period that was big enough to grow and cast shade over Jonah. And then he appointed a worm to come and destroy the plant. And so that he was subjected to a lot of heat, and then God stirred up, appointed an, an east wind to blow that was really hot, and the plant dies, and Jonah's miserable, and God says this, you, "'You, Jonah, you pity the plant "'for which you did not labor, "'nor did you make it grow, "'which came into being in a night "'and perished in a night. "'And should not I pity Nineveh, "'that great city, "'in which there are more than 120,000 persons "'who do not know their right hand from their left?' And also much cattle. Who does not know their right hand from the left from their left? Little kids, the mentally infirm. And Jonah, in his religious zeal and pride, would rather God take his life than preserve theirs. That Jonah is outed as a prophet, as a Hebrew, as a servant of Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. And he is outed because his character is so far away from God's. That his heart is so far away from God's. He can articulate what God's character is. Gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, but he will not show that character to anyone else, even to the most vulnerable. No love, no mercy, no forgiveness. You see, Jonah is more severe than God. You tracking with me? Jonah is more severe than God. And what makes that all the more outrageous is how much mercy he has received in this book. The sailors should have killed him outright. They showed him mercy. He should have died in the water. God showed him mercy by giving him the fish to take care of him, to take him He should have died in Nineveh. As soon as he opened his mouth, someone should have shanked him. But they didn't. God shows the religious man mercy, but he can't share that with anyone else. Now, let me ask you this Does this describe you? Does this describe us? I think there was a world outside this room that would say unequivocally it does. That we can articulate our doctrine. We have memorized the Westminster Confession of Faith. But we have no love, we have no mercy. Let me ask you this Who is your enemy? Who's your enemy? You've been wronged in a relationship, wronged at work, the whole political thing that's going on, international terrorism, Pakistan and India fight over Kashmir. Who is your enemy? If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you realize that by virtue of the fact that person's an enemy, it almost is the qualifying factor that says they're ready for the kingdom of God? Do you get that? We are built not to st- not just to strengthen one another. As Richard said earlier, we are built, we ought to be existing for the purpose of taking this good news out to a people who are enemies of God and showing them that he is a God of love and compassion and mercy and grace. That's the call of this book. And so as I reflected about what my mom said, that maybe somebody in here needed to hear this message, my first thought was somebody's getting saved this morning. And praise God, if that's you, come talk to me afterward. But then I also thought somebody might be getting saved from themselves this morning in a different kind of way. Recognizing that they might be Jonah. And by the way, there are times I'm Jonah. Coming clean before God and confessing to Him not a flowery prayer that's beautiful prose as as you saw in chapter 2 when you read that, but a heartfelt confession that I am a sinner, that I need Jesus. And I don't want to be Jonah. I don't want you to be Jonah. God He's a God of love and mercy. And his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And his call is for us by virtue of what his son has done for us, even the religious people. Is to be free of sin, free of our hate, and love the way God loves. That's been the messages of all of these prophets. To grow like Christ. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, we thank you for this word. And God, I pray, I pray that there are, if there are any Jonas among us, that they would lay down their arms and take up your cross. And I pray, Lord, that today might be the day of salvation for someone here. Move, we ask, in Jesus' name and power, amen.